Section 62 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geoffrey de Senna, Coeur d'Alene. Chapter 16 the Anglican Settlement and the Scottish Reformation by F. W. Maitland, Part 5 In the next year the London clergy were recalcitrant. The Spanish ambassador improved the occasion. In reply, Elizabeth told him that the disobedient ministers were not natives of the country, but Scotsmen whom she had ordered to be punished. Literal truth she was not telling, and yet there was truth of a sort in her words. From this time onwards, the historian of the English church must be often thinking of Scotland, and the historian of the Scottish church must keep England ever in view. Two kingdoms are drifting together, first towards a personal and then towards a real union, but two churches are drifting apart into dissension and antagonism. The attractions and repulsions that are involved in this process fill a large page in the annals of Britain. They have become plain to all in the age of the Bishops' Wars and the Westminster Assembly, but they are visible much earlier. The attempt to Scotticize the English Church, which failed in 1660, and the attempt to Anglicize the Scottish Church, which failed in 1688, each of these had its century. For a while there is uncertainty. At one moment Maitland is sure that the two kingdoms have one religion, at another, March 1563, he can tell the Bishop of Aquila that there are great differences, but undoubtedly in 1560 the prevailing belief was that the Protestants of England and Scotland were substantially at one, and, many as were to be the disputes between them, they remained substantially at one for the greatest of all purposes until there was no fear that either realm would revert to Rome. From the first, the reforming movement in the northern kingdom had been in many ways an English movement. Then, in 1560, reformation and national deliverance had been effected simultaneously by the aid of English gold and English arms. John Knox was a Scot of Scots, and none but a Scot could have done what he did. But, had he died in 1558 at the age of 53, his name would have occurred rather in English than in Scottish books, and he might have disputed with Hooper the honour of being the progenitor of the English Puritans. The congregation at Geneva for which he compiled his prayer book was not Scottish, but English. His Catholic adversaries in Scotland said that he could not write good Scots. Some of his principal lieutenants were Englishmen or closely connected with England. John Willock, while he was superintendent, Noxian bishop, of Glasgow, was also parson of Loughborough. Mr. Goodman of England had professed divinity at Oxford, and after his career in Scotland was an English archdeacon, though a troublesome Puritan. John Craig had been tutor in an English family, and instead of talking honest Scots, would nap Sudrone. But further, Knox had signed the English Articles of 1553, and is plausibly supposed to have modified their wording. A Catholic controversialist of Mary's day said that a runigate Scot had procured that the adoration of Christ in the sacrament should be put out of the English prayer book. 
to that book in 1559, Knox had strong objections. He detested ceremonies. The Coxian party at Frankfurt had played him a sorry trick, and he had just cause of resentment. But there was nothing doctrinally wrong with the book. It was used in Scotland. In 1560, a Frenchman whom Randolph took to church in Glasgow, and who had previously been in Elizabeth's chapel, saw great differences, but heard few, for the prayers of the English book were said. Not until some years later did the Book of Geneva, Knox's liturgy, become the fixed standard of worship for the Scottish church. The objection to all prescript prayers is of later date, and some say that it passes from England into Scotland. This Genevan use had been adopted by the chaplain of Elizabeth's forces at Havre, and, though it was bidden to discontinue it, he was forthwith appointed to the deanery of Durham. A Puritan movement in England there was likely to be in any case. The arguments of both parties were already prepared. The Leipzig interim, the work of the Elector Maurice, had given rise to a similar quarrel among the Lutherans, between Flatians on the one side and Philippians on the other, over those rites and ornaments which were indifferent in themselves, but had, as some thought, been soiled by superstition. The English exiles who returned from Zurich and Geneva would dislike cap, gown, and surplice. But their foreign mentors counselled submission. Bullinger was large-minded, and Calvin was politic. Scotland, however, was very near, and in Scotland this first phase of Puritanism was in its proper place. So long as Mary reigned there and plotted there, the Protestant was hardly an established religion. And, had Knox been the coolest of schemers, he would have endeavoured to emphasise every difference between the old warship and the new. It was not for him to make light of adiaphora. It was for him to keep Protestant ardour and fever heat. Maitland, who was a cool schemer, made apology to Cecil for Knox's vehemence. As things are fallen out, it will serve to good purpose. And yet, it is fairly certain that Knox dissuaded English Puritans from secession. In his eyes, the Coxian Church of England might be an erring sister, but still was a twin sister of the Noxian Church of Scotland. Elizabeth's resistance to the Puritan demands was politic. The more Protestant demand was, the more secure would be his loyalty if Rome were aggressive. It was for her to appeal to the neutral in religion and those faint professors of whom her bishops saw too many. It is not perhaps very likely that surplices and square caps won to her side many of those who cared much for the old creed. Not the simplest and most ignorant papist, says Whitgift, to the Puritans, could mistake the communion for the mass. The mass has been banished from England as from Scotland. We are full as well reformed as are the Scots. But Elizabeth feared frequent changes, was glad to appear a merely moderate reformer, and meant to keep the clergy well in hand. Moreover, in Catholic circles, her cross and candles produced a good impression. When she reproved Dean Noel for inveighing against such things, this was soon known to Cardinal Borromeo, and he was not despondent, April 21st, 1565. Even her dislike for a married clergy, which seems to have been the outcome of an indiscriminating misogyny, was favourably noticed. It encouraged the hope that she might repent, and for some time Rome was unwilling to quench this plausibly smoking flax. But her part was difficult. The Puritans could complain that they were worse treated than Spanish, French, and Dutch refugees, whose presence in England she liberally encouraged. Cassiodoro de Reina, Nicolas de Galas, and Utnova, 
though the bishop of london was their legal superintendent were allowed a liberty that was denied to humphrey and sampson there was one welcome for mrs matthew parker and another for madame la cardinale the controversy of the sixties over rights and clothes led to the controversy of the seventies over polity until at length presbyterianism and episcopalianism stood arrayed against each other but the process was gradual we must not think that calvin had formulated a presbyterian system which could be imported ready-made from geneva to britain in what is popularly called presbyterianism there are various elements one is the existence of certain presbyters or elders who are not pastors or ministers of the word but who take a larger or smaller part in the government of the church this element may properly be called calvinian though the idea of some such eldership had occurred to other reformers speculations touching the earliest history of the christian church were combined with a desire to interest the laity in a rigorous ecclesiastical discipline but calvin worked with the materials that were ready to his hand and was far too wary to raise polity to the rank of dogma the genevan church was essentially civic or municipal its consistory is very much like a committee of a town council this could not be the model for a church of france or of scotland which would contain many particular congregations of churches granted that these particular churches will be governed by elders very little has yet been decided we may have the loosest federation of autonomous units or the strictest subordination of the parts to some assembly which is or represents the whole slowly and empirically the problem was solved with somewhat different results in france scotland and the low countries as we have said the month which saw knox land in scotland saw a french church taking shape in a national synod that was being secretly held at paris already frenchmen are setting an example for constituent assemblies and written constitutions knox who had been edifying the church of dieppe that dieppe which was soon to pass into elizabeth's hands stood in the full current of the french movement but like his teacher he had no iron system to impose each particular congregation would have elders besides a pastor there would be some general assembly of the whole church but knox was not an ecclesiastical jurist the first book of discipline fifteen sixty decides wonderfully little even the structure of the general assembly is nebulous and as a matter of fact all righteous noblemen seem to be welcomed therein it gradually gives itself a constitution and while a similar process is at work in france other jurisdictional and governmental organs are developed until kirk session presbytery synod and assembly form a concentric system of courts and councils of which rome herself might be proud but much of this belongs to a later time in scotland it is not noxian but melvillian a mere demand for some ruling elders for the particular churches was not likely to excite enthusiasm or antagonism england knew that plan the curious church of foreign refugees which was organized in the london of edward the sixth days under the presidency of john lasky had elders cranmer took great interest in what he probably regarded as a fruitful experiment and the noxian church has some traits which so good critics think tell less of geneva than of the polish but cosmopolitan nobleman dr horne elizabeth's bishop of winchester had been the pastor of a presbyterian flock of english refugees at frankfurt with a portion of that flock he had quarrelled not for being presbyterian but because the presbyterianism of this precocious conventicle was already taking that acutely democratic and distinctly un-calvinian form 
in which the elders of the annually elected officers of a congregation which keeps both minister and elders well under control among englishmen a drift toward congregationalism appears almost as soon as the ruling elder the enthusiasm and antagonism were awakened by a different cry it was not a call for presbyters but a call for parity for an equality among the ministers of god's word and consequently for an abolition of all prelacy as a battle-cry this was hardly calvinian nor is it noxian it is first audible at cambridge the premises it is true lay ready to the hand of any one who chose to combine them the major was that protestant principle which refers us to the primitive church the minor was a proposition familiar to the middle age originally there was no difference between the presbyter and the episcopus every student of the canon law knew the doctrine and that the prelacy of bishops is founded not on divine command but on a custom of the church when the puritan said that the episcopal jurisdiction was of popish origin he agreed with lainez and the pope at least as had been amply shown at trent the divine right of bishops was a matter over which catholic doctors could quarrel bitterly but the great reformers had been chary of their words about ecclesiastical polity there were many possibilities to be considered and the decision would rest with the princes or civic councils the defenders of anglican episcopacy occasionally told the puritan that he was not a good calvinist and even Bazer could hardly be brought by british pressure to a sufficiently dogmatic denunciation of prelacy as to knox it is clear that though he thought the english dioceses too large he had no radical objections to such prelacy as existed in england moreover the church that he organized in scotland was prelatic and there is but little proof that he regarded its prelatic constitution as a concession to merely temporary needs the word bishop was avoided in scotland there still were lawful bishops of another creed but over the dioceses stand superintendents the title comes from germany who though strictly accountable to the general assembly are distinctly the rulers of the diocesan clergy between superintendent and minister there is no parity the one may command the other must obey the theory that valid orders can be conferred by none but a bishop knox would no doubt have denied but some at all events of the contemporary english bishops would have joined him in the denial apparently thomas cartwright a young professor of divinity at cambridge spoke the word fifteen seventy that had not yet been spoken in scotland cambridge was seething with puritanism the bishops had been putting the vestiarian law in force and the french church had declared for parity there ought to be equality presbyter and bishop were once all one but if the demand for parity was first heard south of the tweed it was soon echoed back by scotland and thenceforth the english puritan was often looking northward in scotland much had been left unsettled from august fifteen sixty one to may fifteen sixty eight mary stuart is there rizzio and darnley bothwell and moray lethington and knox are on the stage and we hold our breath while the tragedy is played we forget the background of unsolved questions and uncertain law is the one lawful religion the catholic or the protestant are there two established churches or is one church established and another endowed there is an interim or rather an armed truce the queen had not confirmed the statutes of fifteen sixty though mass-mongers were occasionally imprisoned 
nothing decisive had been done in the matter of tithes and kirklands and advowsons the protestant ministers and superintendents were receiving small stipends which were charged upon the ecclesiastical revenues but the bishops and abbots some of whom were protestant ministers had not been ousted from their temporalities or their seats in parliament and as vacancies occurred the bishoprics were conferred upon new occupants some of whom were catholics the general assembly might meet twice a year but john hamilton still went to parliament as a reverend father in god and primate of scotland if mary had succeeded in re-establishing catholicism we should probably have said that it had never been disestablished and when she had been deposed and a parliament held in her son's name had acknowledged the noxian church to be the immaculate spouse of christ much was still unsettled what was to be done with the bishoprics and abbacies and with the revenues and seats in parliament that were involved therewith grave questions of civil and ecclesiastical polity were open and a large mass of wealth went a-begging or illustrated the beatitude of possession then in the seventies we on the one hand see an attempt to anglicize the church by giving it bishops who will sit in parliament and be somewhat more prelatic than were knox's superintendents and on the other hand we hear a swelling cry for parity to many a scot prelacy will always suggest another word of evil sound to wit erastianism the link is anglican the name of the professor of medicine at heidelberg it was thomas lerber or in greek erastus one of fame or infamy in britain that has been denied to it elsewhere and in some sort this is fair for it was an english puritan who called him into the field and after his death his manuscript book was brought to england and there for the first time printed his prince the elector palatine frederick the third was introducing into his dominions in the place of the lutheranism which had prevailed there the theology that flowed from zurich and geneva images were being destroyed and altars were giving place to tables this as elizabeth knew when the thirty-nine articles lay before her was a very serious change it strained to a breaking point of the professed unanimity of the protestant princes theology however was one thing church polity another and for all the genevan rigours frederick was not yet prepared but to heidelberg for a doctor's degree came an english puritan george withers and he stirred up strife by urging the necessity of a discipline exercised by pastor and elders june fifteen sixty eight erastus answered him by declaring that excommunication has no warrant in the word of god and further that when the prince is a christian there is no need for a corrective jurisdiction which is not that of the state but that of the church this sowed dissension between zurich and geneva between bollinger the friend of the english bishops and beza the oracle of the puritans the controversy in england began to nibble at the royal supremacy and in scotland the relation between the state which until fifteen sixty seven had a papistical head and the noxian church was of necessity highly indeterminate knox had written sentences which in our rough british use of the term were erastian enough and a great deal of history might have been changed had he found in scotland a pious prince or even a pious princess a josiah or even a deborah as it fell out the scottish church aspired to and at times attained a truly medieval independence andrew melville's strain of language has been compared with that of gregory the seventh so has thomas cartwright's but the scottish church had an opportunity of resuming ancient claims which was denied to the english 
1572 an oath was imposed in Scotland. The model was English, but important words were changed. The King of Scots is supreme governor of this realm as well as in things temporal as in the conservation and purgation, of as well in all spiritual of religion. The Queen of England is supreme governor in this realm as well in all spiritual or ecclesiastical things or causes as temporal. The greater continuity of ecclesiastical history is not wholly on one side of the border. The change of popery was soon retorted against the Puritans by the Elizabethan divines and their Helvetian advisers. Your new presbyter in his lust for an usurped dominion is but too like an old priest. The controversy with the Puritans in Elizabethan religion gradually assumed an air of moderation, which had hardly belonged to it from the first. It looked like a compromise between an old faith and a new. It is true that from the beginning of her reign Elizabeth distrusted Calvin, and when she swore that she never read his books she may have sworn the truth. That blast of the trumpet had repelled her. Not only had the regiment of women been attacked, but Knox and Goodman had advocated a divine right of rebellion against idolatrous princes. Calvin might protest his innocence, but still this dangerous stuff came from his Geneva. Afterwards, however, he took an opportunity of being serviceable to the Queen in a matter of a book which spoke ill of her father and mother. Then a pretty message went to him, and he was bidden to feel assured of her favour, September 18, 1561. Moreover, in German history, Elizabeth appears as espousing the cause of oppressed Calvinists against the oppressing Lutherans. Still, as time went on, when the Huguenots, as she said, had broken faith with her about Havre and Calais, and the attack on her officers, the bishops, was being made in the name of the Genevan discipline, her dislike of Geneva, its works and its ways, steadily grew. Though in the region of pure theology, Calvin's influence increased apace in England and Scotland after his death, and Whitgift, the stern repressor of the Puritans, was a remorseless predestinarian. Still, the bishops saw, albeit with regret, that they had two frontiers to defend, and that they could not devote all their energy to the confutation of the Luvanists. Then some severed or half-severed bonds were spliced. Parker was a lover of history, and it was pleasant to sit in the chair of Augustine, seeing two editions of Elfric's homilies and the chronicles of Matthew Paris. But the work was slowly done, and foreigners took a good share in it. Hadrian Saravia, who defended English episcopacy against Beza, was a refugee, half Spaniard, half Fleming. Pierre Baron of Cambridge, who headed a movement against Calvin's doctrine of the divine decrees, was another Frenchman, another pupil of the law school of Bourges. And it is to be remembered that Elizabeth's accession, the Genevan, was not the only model for a radically reformed church. The fame of Zwingli Zurich had hardly been eclipsed, and for many years the relation between the Anglican and the Tigerine churches was close and cordial. A better example of a purely spiritual power could hardly be found than the influence that was exercised in England by Zwingli's successor, Henry Bullinger. Bishops and Puritans argued their causes before him as if he were the judge. So late as 1586, English clergymen are required to peruse his immortal decades. There was some gratitude in the case. A silver cup with verses on it had spoken Elizabeth's thanks for the hospitality that he had shown to Englishmen. But that was not all. He sympathized with Elizabeth and her bishops and her Erastianism. 
He condemned the English fool who broke the peace of the Palatinate by a demand for the Genevan discipline. When the cry was that the congregation should elect its minister, the Puritan could be told how in an admirably reformed republic, Protestant pastors were still chosen by patrons who might be papists, even by a bishop of Constance who might be the Pope's own nephew and a cardinal to boot. For a Christian magistracy would see that this patronage was not abused. But then, when the bad day came and the Pope hurled his thunderbolt, it was to Bollinger that the English bishops looked for a learned defence of their queen and their creed. Modestly but willingly, he undertook the task, none the less willingly perhaps because Pius V had seen fit to couple Elizabeth's name with Calvin's. And this was a controversialist's trick which Zurich could expose. Bullinger knew all the Puritan woes and did not like surpluses. He knew and much disliked the semi-popery of Lutheran Germany. But in his eyes the Church of England was no halfway house. As to Elizabeth, he saw her as no lukewarm friend of true religion, but as a virgin queen beloved of God, whose wisdom and clemency, whose felicity and dexterity were a marvel and a model for all Christian princes. March 12, 1572. The felicity and dexterity are not to be denied. The Elizabethan religion, which satisfied Bullinger, was satisfying many other people also. For, to say nothing of intrinsic merits or defects, it appeared as part and parcel of a general amelioration. It was allied with honest money, cheap and capable government, national independence, and a reviving national pride. The long terror was overpassed, at least for a while. The flow of noble blood was stayed, the axe rusted at the tower. The long Elizabethan peace was beginning, 1563, while France was ravaged by civil war, and while more than half of Scots looked to the English queen as the defender of their faith. One Spaniard complains that these heretics have not their due share of the troubles. November 1562, another that they are waxing fat upon the spoil of the Indies. August 1565, the England into which Francis Bacon was born in 1561 and William Shakespeare in 1564 was already unlike the England that was ruled by the Queen of Spain. End of section 62